0: But we're now a week and a half into the season of Lent, a six-week period when many uh, people of faith intentionally spend more time with God and on self-reflection. And as I shared last week, Lent can be a passage of time in which we experience renewal, renewal within ourselves, renewal in our relationships with others, renewal with our time with God. Now, I've noticed over the years that during Lent that some people in some churches get so darn serious. Have you ever noticed that? you tell lots of people are acting more pious than usual. For example, uh, one church recently put up a sign about Lent inviting people to come to church for Lent that said Lent is not just for belly buttons. <laughs> I thought that was classic. <laughs> Another church announced, this, announced the arrival of Lent with this Ash Wednesday sign a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was also brilliant. Lent is coming. Get your ash in church. <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> even the secular world's getting in on it. And uh, with this serious messaging, there's a sign I found in front of a paint store that says, it's Lent. Thinners repaint. Paul likes that one. (laughs) And then on this St. Patrick's Day in Lent, one fellow said to a friend, I gave up drinking for Lent, but today I'm giving up Lent for St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) Such a reflective time of year. All joking aside, uh, last Sunday I began this sermon series, and each sermon is self contained, so if you missed it, don't worry. But I began this sermon series titled Rolling Stones, Releasing What Weighs Us Down. And just to get back into the mindset of where we were a week ago, you may recall that I asked each of us to picture in our minds being in a place where there are lots of rocks or stones, that I invited us each to imagine being in that place and actually bending down and picking up stone after stone after stone. And I shared that that image of being in a place where we are in a place with rocks and stones and we bend over and pick up stones, that it reminds me that in life that many of us become stone collectors. Not the kinds of stones found in nature, but the kinds of stones that weigh us down and are very hard to release. That such stones have names like temptation, bitterness, anger, feelings of inadequacy, inadequacy, struggling with forgiveness, hopelessness, just to name a few. We each of you hopefully received a rock upon entering the chapel this morning. If not, we'll make sure you have one. Hold on to that rock. We will do something with it shortly. Well, last week we got into the whole issue of temptations, where they come from, why they happen, and what happens when we give in to them. The temptations can become quite burdensome in life, and they can become quite heavy and wear us out, just like carrying around a bag full of rocks. Today, however, I'd like to get into something else that can weigh us down, deplete our energy, and can make us, in fact, quite sick. And what I'd like to get into today is the whole subject and topic of anger Now, I need to be clear before beginning that anger in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing at all. It is clearly a human feeling, and it is clearly a God-given emotion. And if it's directed constructively, anger can actually be very useful. There are lots of things that can make us angry. Social justices, for example, as well as the needless suffering in this valley, in our country, and on this planet. And anger, if channeled properly, can lead to transformative change. You may remember Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King, and Dorothy Dix, all who were angry, but channeled their anger to address migrant farm worker conditions, segregation and discrimination, and the treatment of mental illness. And aside from that, throughout the Gospels, we hear story after story after story of Jesus being angry in response to people who had hard hearts, who put their opinions ahead of the person that was right in front of them. Now, as we've talked about in adult ed, there's one person that writes, basically, the problem is often with religious people that if I'm a religious person that sometimes I put my view ahead of you. Instead of you ahead of my view. And Jesus certainly got angry whenever someone put a view ahead of the person standing right in front of them, instead of the person ahead of the view that they held. So, anger can be valid, it can be constructive, it can serve as fuel for justice, it can motivate us to get out of a bad relationship. It can help us make needed changes in our life if the anger is used in a healthy way. But the problem, and we see it every day, is that anger is often expressed in non-constructive ways. We've seen it. Anger leads to deceit, name-calling, gossip, tearing people down, negativity, hostility, violence, aggression, judgmentalness. And anger, I believe, can spread like a stomach virus on a cruise ship. (laughs) Anger, too, can lead us astray and, in fact, away from a relationship with Jesus and far away from the lives that Jesus wants us to have, which are lives that are characterized by love. Anger, in fact, too, can move away from being a temporary emotion into a way of being and living every day. Anger can lead to complaining about everything, bickering, acting out, distancing ourselves from another person, rudeness, lack of decorum, being passive-aggressive, controlling others, substance abuse, and a whole host of physical stuff. Anger impedes right action, good decision-making, healthy choices, and wisdom itself, along with clouding good judgment. I love what the theologian Frederick Buechner writes about anger. He writes, anger can be fun. To lick your chops, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton of the anger feast is you. And then there's Benjamin Franklin who wrote, whatever began in anger ends in shame. And then finally a fellow named Richard Girard writes, our world is filled with angry words between heads of state, between political leaders, between newscasters and commentators. Our electronic media does not help, it only amplifies anger. And if we are not careful, the world's angry spirit can creep into our marriages, our homes, and our churches. Now a lot of people in scripture said things about anger that are helpful to remember as well. One person said, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Notice this person writing is not saying, never get angry, because that's what it means to be human. Instead, the person is simply saying, don't be reactive and too quick to get mad. Paul one day in a letter said, be angry, yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul knew that anger is part of life. He got mad, but he warns that anger can lead to bad things and that we need to not stay angry over time. Paul also wrote, let go of bitterness, anger, slander, and malice. We also know that stories of anger are all over, the Old and the New Testaments. Cain, you remember, was angry at his brother, so what did he do? He killed him. And in the story, God warns Cain. When God says, you were really angry, Cain, be careful, because when you were mad... Sin is crouching at your door waiting to get you. I love that image that when we're angry that sin is just waiting to pounce on us. And that's what happened with Cain. And then there are the stories, of course, of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers being ticked off at their brother Joseph and they sell him off into slavery. Or the story about Simeon and his brother Levi who were justifiably angry at the assault of their sister Dinah. But sadly, their anger gets the best of them and they slaughter countless people and plunder an entire village because of their anger. Or the people of Ephesus who rioted because they were so ticked off at Paul. And then there's the story of Naaman in our first reading today from the second book of Kings. Naaman, as we know, was the commander of the powerful Aramaean army, an enemy of Israel. Naaman was highly respected, highly esteemed, but he had a big problem. He had leprosy. And it just so happens that living within Naaman's household was a captive servant. We don't know what her name was, but it is this servant that goes to Naaman's wife and says that she knows of a person who can heal Naaman. And she tells Naaman's wife, that she has heard of a prophet in the land of Israel. And if the Naaman will go to this prophet, that he will be healed. And after a series of events and traveling to Israel, Naaman goes to the house of the prophet Elijah. And when he arrives, instead of greeting Naaman personally, Elijah sends a messenger out to greet Naaman. The messenger at Elijah's request tells Naaman that if he will go wash in the river Jordan seven times, that his leprosy will be healed. And Naaman, because of his ego, is put off and insulted. He would not believe the prophet wouldn't greet him personally. I thought that he would certainly come out for me. I'm so important. Pure ego talking. And Naaman is angry that the prophet will also not heal him through some spectacular supernatural means. And after storming off in a tizzy, Naaman's companions finally convince him to follow Elijah's instructions, and he is finally healed. Then there's a story we heard from Luke's gospel. Jesus had been doing a lot of teaching. And during this time, some Pharisees come on the scene and tell Jesus that Herod is after him and wants to kill him. Herod's a bad dude. He's the guy that cut off John the Baptist's head. Now, why the Pharisees are warning Jesus in this story, we don't know. But for sure, they're not concerned about Jesus' safety. We know, too, that Herod was a judgmental, angry fellow who's likely felt threatened by Jesus. So it's no surprise that he intends to get Jesus. But instead of acting on this new information, Jesus says, tell that conniving fox I don't have time for him right now. It's not proper for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. We know that Jerusalem was ground zero for spiteful, controlling, and angry religious types who killed and sometimes stoned to death those with whom they disagreed. The religious leaders often in Jerusalem were so narrow and so filled with venom and so hateful and angry, they could not understand or accept what God was trying to do through Jesus. Now these two stories, while on the surface very different, actually are two examples, two great examples, that give us a glimpse of where anger can come from. And we learn from these stories and we learn from ones like them and we learn from mental health people that anger, anger, comes from fear, feeling threatened, being jealous, self-righteousness, too much certainty, low self-esteem. Conversely, anger comes from a massive ego thinking too highly of oneself, a sense of entitlement, lack of humility. And anger, of course, can come from loss and grief and emotional pain. And it's also important to point out that anger frequently is a secondary emotion, meaning that in general, when we are angry, more often than not, there is a whole host of stuff going on way, way down beneath the surface. So what can we do with anger? Well, the short answer is a lot. A number of months ago, a small yellow light came on in my truck. It said, check engine. And before too much time passed, I took my truck in to be looked at. And while it was no big deal, I know that a check engine light's a good thing not to ignore. If we don't pay attention to that little light, Big, expensive damage can happen. Anger is precisely like that. Anger is a check engine light in our lives. You see, when we're angry, it is essential that we stop, that we open up the hood of our minds and spirit and explore honestly what is happening beneath the surface, underneath the hood. And just like I need a mechanic to check my truck out, I believe we often need other people we trust to help us take a look at the anger that we experience. We ignore anger, and when we ignore continuing anger, we do it at our own peril. I also have learned and believe in my journey with anger myself that anger is a choice we make. We really can choose to be angry or not, to act on anger or not. We can choose what to do with our anger and how to channel it. We can choose not to take revenge. We can choose to take time out for ourselves when we're angry, to pray, to exercise, to vent in a healthy way. We can choose to be humble and get help with anger. And as Jesus said, we can choose to deal with the log in our own eye day in and day out rather than with the speck in the eyes of others. We can choose, if it's our struggle, to let go of a sense of of entitlement. We can choose to let go of our egos and thinking so highly of ourselves and admitting that we, like all other people, are fallible and make mistakes. We can choose to remember something psychologists call the actor-observer bias, That is where we tend to attribute our own actions to the situation we're in. But when we see somebody else acting, it's because of who they are as a person down deep. When social justice issues arrive, we can choose to use our anger to constructively get involved in making changes. And we can use, as I spoke of earlier this winter, we can use the Psalms as a vehicle through which to emote our anger and our frustrations. Yes, there's a lot we can do with anger, but when it's all said and done, I believe every one of us here experiences anger, and sometimes justifiably. And many of us here today at some point in our lives have likely struggled with anger. We are human after all. And while anger is a God-given emotion, and though anger itself is not bad as I mentioned, Anger, in fact, can become like a big bag of rough, sharp, cutting edged rocks that destroy us. Anger can get quite heavy, burdensome, and tiring. As we did last week and will continue to do each week in Lent, although with a different theme each week, it is time now to hold the rock you received in your hand. And Charlotte, I don't know, does anybody not have a rock? Charlotte can give you all rocks. Don't throw them at me, but just grab, <laughs> grab them. <laughs> I know stoning somebody's biblical, but that's not what I have in mind. <laughs> so I'd like you to take the rock that, is in your, that you have and hold it in your hand. Look at that rock. And visualize its edges and visualize that rock as representing any anger or bitterness or spite or hatred or venom or prejudice or judgmentalness that you're struggling with right now in your life. That rock represents all of that stuff. In a few moments, we will celebrate communion. And when we do, I'm going to invite you to bring your rock with you and all that it represents. We're going to have a basket up front. When you come forward to receive the bread and wine, I invite you to drop that rock in the basket and all that it represents. Anger, spite, venom, judgmentalness that you're carrying around, that you're sick of dealing with and ask God to deal with it for you. Christ will help you. Christ will work through you. Christ forgives you. Christ will take it from you. Now, Each and every week, we're going to do the same thing, although each week, as I said, we'll cover a different topic. At the end of each week, we'll put rocks in front of the altar. They're the rocks from last week. And because we're human and because we're the kind of chapel where we don't have to be perfect, but we can be ourselves, we're going to have quite the pile of rocks there by the end of Lent. And God doesn't want us to carry that stuff around. And finally, make sure you're here Easter morning. God's going to do something with those rocks. Something amazing. But in the meantime, let us now pray.